Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back, guys. We are ready to tackle a few more chapters for you that are not covered in the fifth edition of Campbell that we went through last year. The first topic today is hemophilia. Hemophilia is an inherited bleeding disorder in which the blood does not clot properly. This can lead to spontaneous bleeding as well as bleeding following injuries or surgery. Blood contains proteins called clotting factors that stop bleeding but people with hemophilia have low levels of either factor eight, this is hemophilia A, or factor nine, which is hemophilia B. Most cases involve factor eight. So the severity of hemophilia that a person has is determined by the amount of that factor in the blood. The lower the amount of factor, the more likely it is that bleeding will occur, which can obviously lead to serious health problems. With severe, you're going to have less than 1% of normal factor, and hemorrhage can happen spontaneously. With moderate hemophilia, you're going to have 1% to 5% of normal factor present, and a hemorrhage can happen following mild to moderate trauma. With mild, you have about 5 to 25% of factor available, and severe hemorrhage can happen following moderate to severe trauma or surgery. There is also a group of high-risk carrier females that have 30 to 50% of normal factor, and they're at risk for gynecologic or obstetric hemorrhages. Hemorrhages are most common in the joint cavity, and then muscles are the second most common area. With a muscle hemorrhage, there is specific concern for nerve compression from a hematoma. Hemoarthrosis, which means bleeding into the joint, is the most clinically significant problem in hemophilia. When bleeding occurs into a joint, the joint becomes swollen, warm, and painful and has restricted range of motion. Repetitive hemarthrosis can lead to chronic synovitis and degenerative arthropathy, capsular stretching, and muscle atrophy from immobilization and disuse. And eventually, you can have cartilage damage, bone erosion, and bone remodeling. There are five stages of hemophilic arthropathy. 
One, no bony abnormalities, but soft tissue swelling. Two, osteoporosis and overgrowth of epiphysis, but the joint integrity maintained. Three, subchondral cysts, but the articular cartilage is still intact. Four, joint space is narrow and there is damage to cartilage. And five, there is a fibrous joint with extensive enlargement of the epiphysis and total destruction of articular cartilage. So obviously the aim of intervention is definitely to slow or halt the progression of joint destruction. So let's quickly review the medical side of things and review the medical management of hemophilia. First, they're going to replace the deficient factor. They can do this on demand to stop a bleeding episode. This should also happen as soon as the patient feels stiffness or discomfort in the joint. They can also replace factor prophylactically to decrease or prevent bleeding episodes. This is given on a regular basis and is the treatment choice for children with severe hemophilia. In addition to factor replacement, hemarthroses are treated with rest, immobilization, and avoidance of weight-bearing until the bleeding has resolved. In the long term, arthrodesis, osteotomies, and arthroplasties have been used when severe joint destruction causes pain and disability. Patients with severe hemophilia have a high prevalence of joint contracture. This makes sense, right? You have patients with recurrent hemarthrosis and intramuscular bleeding episodes. They may be splinted in a position of comfort, which is often flexion, and they're likely to be in pain and demonstrate guarding. They might have swelling and limited mobility and weakness. So of course, the risk of joint contracture is high. The common affected joints here are knees and elbows in flexion and ankles in plantar flexion. There are a lot of associated activity limitations, things like gait deviations and ADLs like dressing, grooming, and hygiene due to the frequent involvement of the elbow. There are no functional assessment scales specifically for hemophilia, but something like the FIM or the WEFIM can provide numerical scores in an objective way. Cardiopulmonary endurance can also be impaired. In general, they have lower peak heart rate, lower minutes of exercise, lower physical working capacity, and lower mean power. It's a good idea to supplement physical education class with individualized exercise programs for fitness. Recommendations for sports activities include activities with minimum risk like swimming or cycling. Sports in which physical, social, and psychological benefits outweigh the risks are great, but obviously contact sports are not recommended. In an infant with moderate to severe hemophilia, parents need to watch for signs of hemorrhage. When beginning pull to stand activities, a child may use protective gear to help protect joints while the child is learning to walk. By age three, kids will likely have more frequent hemorrhages due to the increase in activity level. As kids progress to school age, you may see poor school attendance due to frequent medical needs and appointments. Moving on to the role of physical therapy in hemophilia, it is important to maintain strength and range of motion. The best way to do this is to create daily exercise programs, which should be followed from early childhood. Strong muscles help support joints and decrease the frequency of hemorrhages and participation in strengthening programs has resulted in reduced bleeding episodes. It has been shown that the specific type of strengthening is less important than really any consistent daily exercise. 
During examination, you want to note the location and frequency of bleeding episodes, check active and passive range of motion, and look for joint deformities. There is a physical joint examination scale, which has a score 0 to 12 points for knees and ankles and 0 to 10 points for elbows. The score is based on joint swelling, muscle atrophy, crepitus, range of motion, joint contracture, instability, and axial deformity in the knee and ankle. You will go through all of your normal muscle strength, leg lengths, girth measurements for swelling at joints or atrophy of the muscle, gait, balance and coordination, and gross motor development. A pain assessment should also be completed. So moving on to interventions, after an acute event, we first need to obtain hemostasis. The parents and child need to be educated on active exercises for range of motion and strengthening. Passive range of motion is contraindicated. An isometric technique of altering muscle contraction with relaxation is beneficial. Once in the subacute phase, factor replacement should be given before participation in PT. Individualized programs should be created to progress from isometric to active assistive to active and finally resistive mode as the pain and swelling diminish and range of motion and strength improve. Modalities can be used such as ice, tens, splints to decrease joint pain and swelling and hydrotherapy to reduce stress on joints. Contracture management is important. Timmermans in 1989 outlined a program using manual traction and mobilization to relax the joint capsule, increase range of motion, and decrease painful movements. Manual traction is done in a position of comfort with no angular movements. With traction maintained, gentle manipulations are done to facilitate restricted motion. Only use this if your patient has received factor replacement and if the therapist is experienced. A reminder here that passive range of motion is contraindicated, but slow stretching over long periods can be effective. Something like a dynamic splint with very low tension. Orthotics can be used for management of joint and muscle hemorrhages. The general rule is the least restrictive means to protect the joint and discontinue as soon as the joint is strong enough without the extra protection. Strengthening options include isometric, isotonic, isokinetic, and depend on the patient's ability to move without pain. Isometric is usually prescribed immediately after an acute bleed and continued until the joint is no longer tensely swollen and hot and can be moved without pain. Concentric exercises can begin next and progress through active assistive, active, and resistive modes. Isokinetic requires specific equipment. If equipment is available, they can be initiated when muscle strength is in the good range. If equipment is unavailable, modified isokinetic knee strengthening using simultaneous contraction of the flexors of one against the extensors of the other leg. The benefit of isokinetic is that the resistance is accommodated to maintain maximum muscle tension throughout the full arc of motion at a slow speed. Progressive resistive exercise in the open chain provides both concentric and eccentric strengthening and is preferred initially to closed chain. We want to avoid compressive forces. The best programs include 
high repetitions, and low load progressive resistance. All programs need to be advanced slowly, and any signs of bleeding will require a reduced intensity and possible factor replacement. That wraps up our quick overview of hemophilia, which is included in the third version of Campbell. We're going to move on now and talk about another chapter not included in the fifth edition, which is burns. We totally feel like this is important knowledge, and we are excited to review it with you. Look out to our Instagram page for some graphics related to burn staging. We do briefly cover some topics related to child abuse in the burn section, so listener discretion is advised. First things first, the classification of burns. This is super important, and we will post a chart on Instagram for burn classification. So there are three degrees of burn classification, but second degree burns are further classified, so there are really kind of four burn classes. A first degree burn is considered superficial. It only involves the superficial epidermis layer of the skin. It is painful and bright red. It will be edematous and it may blister and will blanch with pressure. Second degree burns are considered partial thickness burns and can be superficial or deep. Superficial second degree burns will involve the epidermis and a small part of the dermis. They will have increased sensitivity to pain and temperature. They will be red. The texture will be normal or firm, and the blister will be large and thick-walled. With deep second-degree burns, the epidermis and a deeper portion of the dermis is involved. There is increased sensitivity to pain and temperature. They will have a marbled, white, edematous appearance. The texture will be firm and the blister will be large and thick walled. A third degree burn is classified as full thickness. You will have total destruction of the epidermis and dermis, and it may extend into deeper tissues such as the muscle or the subcutaneous fat. There will be no pain or sensation present. The color will be white or brown and black in charred appearance. The texture is firm or leathery, and there will likely be no blistering. We really recommend reviewing a graphic of the skin so you can familiarize yourself with the layers of the skin. This can also help you review for pressure ulcer, ulcer staging. Burns and pressure ulcer staging are very similar, so review them both at the same time and make that connection in your brain. They are both staged similarly in terms of the skin layer involvement. We can put up a skin graphic on our Instagram this week. Something to keep in mind for the exam, but more importantly, as a pediatric clinician, there are burn patterns that can be more indicative of abuse. For example, seeing burns on the buttocks, feet, and perineum when the backs of the knees and anterior hip are not burned. This can be due to placing a child in hot water and the child is actually flexing up into a protective position by curling up the knees and the hips. Measuring the extent of the burn injury is usually done by the rule of nines, which involves dividing the body surfaces into areas, each representative of 9% or a multiple of nine. There are plenty of photos of the rule of nines available. However, the rule of nines is unreliable in children younger than 15 years old. A different option is the London Browder chart. This chart takes age into consideration with decreasing percentage body surface area for the head and increasing percentage body surface area for the legs as the child ages, making it more useful in pediatric burns. So remember, the London Browder chart is more reliable in children under the age of 15. 
When someone suffers a severe burn, there is a loss of ability to regulate evaporative water loss. There is impairment of the body's first line of defense against infections, and there can be loss of massive amounts of body fluids through those open wounds. A child should be seen in a burn unit if they sustain a partial thickness burn greater than 20% of the body, or if they sustain any type of full thickness burns greater than 10%. Also, if the burns are in difficult areas such as the hands, face, eyes, ears, feet, or perineum, or if the burns are associated with other injuries. The first step in burn care is medical management. Usually, shock is one of the first things that needs to be managed. In children with burns involving greater than 12% of the surface area or full thickness burns, they will require IV fluids until the capillary leak stops. An ascarotomy is an incision through the burn and may be necessary to relieve the pressure caused by progressive edema. A fasciotomy may be required for deep burns or high voltage electrical burns. These are needed to relieve elevated pressure in fascial compartments. So once stable, the necrotic tissue must be removed. This usually requires daily mechanical debridement or surgical incision. Aggressive and thorough wound care is important before surgical intervention to promote good granulation tissue until grafting or to promote rapid healing in wounds that are healing without surgical intervention. The types of cleansing techniques include local care, spray hydrotherapy, or submersion. Dressing changes are usually daily or twice daily. There are various topical burn creams and solutions available. Gauzes should be wrapped distally to proximally on burned extremities, and it is important that burned surfaces should not touch. This prevents raw surfaces from growing together and webbing. Once hemodynamically stable, an autograph is immediately placed or a temporary biologic or synthetic dressing with, until autographing can be completed. Full thickness wounds usually require skin grafts. Wounds of partial thickness that do not heal within 21 days should also be closed with a skin graft. Split thickness grafts are used almost exclusively. These are grafts cut through a partial thickness depth of skin, leaving epidermal regenerative cells that allow re-epithelialization of the donor site. The scalp is a superior donor site due to the excellent blood supply with deep closely placed hair follicles that are able to affect re-epithelialization in four to five days. A graft must be undisturbed in order to adhere. Fibrin causes initial adherence and inoculization occurs in about two days. Immobilization by a splint is usually used, and in most cases, there is enough tensile strength between the graft and the wound to permit active range of motion on the fourth and certainly by the sixth day. Gentle passive range of motion by the sixth or seventh day can be completed. Autograph substitutes must be used for large burns. So let's talk a little bit about the physiology of scar formation. So when there's a loss of capillary integrity, this leads to edema formation and results in the outpouring of protein-rich intravascular fluid into the interstitium. 
Edema fluid accumulates and persists in tissue spaces around tendons, joints, and ligaments, and new collagen fibers form in this protein-rich edema fluid and organize into unyielding adhesions and thickened support structures whose normal elasticity is lost. So children are more susceptible to this hypertrophic scarring. So pressure minimizes the development of scars by interfering with this production of collagen and helping to realign the collagen fibers. 25 millimeters of mercury pressure must be achieved for clinically significant pressure. All patients whose burns require 14 to 21 days to heal and who have areas grafted should have prophylactic pressure therapy. Pressure should be applied as early as possible and custom garments can be applied once the burn is 90% healed. Pressure garments need to be worn for 23 hours a day and up to two years because the active phase of scarring gradually subsides and will be completed within 1.5 to two years post-burn. Musculoskeletal complications include immobility and inactivity during the acute phase. There may also be peripheral nerve involvement, exposed tendons and joints, and the possibility of heterotrophic bone formation or amputation. The average estimated time for burn healing with a partial thickness burn is 14 days and 21 days or more for a deep thickness burn. In the post-acute stage, we need to look at the burn scar, its mobility and its texture. We also need to assess the range of motion of joints adjacent to that burn. We need to look at pain, we need to look at gait, and we definitely need to look at functional abilities. The deforming effects of burn scar contractures can be decreased by use of the following procedural interventions, proper patient positioning and use of splints, range of motion, graded resistive exercises, early ambulation, scar management techniques, patient and family education regarding skin care and the rehabilitation program, and modalities that aid in increasing skin pliability and desensitizing the healed burn area. It is important that the child participate in as much self-care as possible, obviously to the extent that they are able. They can be included in dressing changes or decision-making when confronted with equal alternatives and personal hygiene. An important component to burn care is positioning and splints. Positioning and splinting in burn management can assist with edema reduction, protection of weakened or exposed structures, preservation or restoration of range of motion, and protection of new grafts. During the emergent phase of burn recovery, the positioning plan involves elevation of the burned extremities to reduce edema and protect weakened or exposed structures. The positioning plan should be maintained at all times when not in wound care or therapy, and if the desired position is unable to be achieved, you should splint. Splints are to immobilize skin grafts kept in place at all times until stable, which is usually five to seven days. Splints are also used to realign developing scar tissue or to stretch contracted skin. Splints are applied at all times to apply constant stretch and pressure. Remember, constant tension is required to elongate tissue. The third edition had a great chart about the exercise goals for each stage of recovery. 
in the emergence stage, the goals are edema resolution, maintenance of joint mobility, and prevention of respiratory complications. You can achieve this by slow, gentle, active, or active assistive range of motion two to four times per day. During the acute stage, the goals are stretch healing skin, regain full joint range of motion, preserve coordination of multiple joining movements, and promote functional independence. This can be done by continuing range of motion and doing functional activities and ambulation as able. In the post-acute slash rehabilitation stage, the goals are to increase range of motion, prevent or correct contractures, strengthen and recondition muscles, and maximize functional abilities. This is done through range of motion, ADL training, ambulation programs, and we can do things by incorporating stretching, coordination, strengthening, endurance, and conditioning. This is a good time to think about a test-taking strategy. If you're presented with a question on burns, make sure you pause and think about what stage the burn is in. What phase of healing are we dealing with? This can help you zero in on the right answer or at least cross maybe one or two incorrect answers off your list. Some specific things related to burns and physical therapy treatments. After grafting, exercise to the grafted area should be discontinued for about five days. During this time, the focus is on positioning. Full joint range of motion can begin 7 to 10 days after grafting. In regards to pain, children exhibit increased pain reactions during exercise, and we should plan to coordinate pain medication with nursing before exercise sessions enhance the quality of sessions. With stretching, skin should stretch to the point of blanching. Hold 10 to 15 seconds at a terminal stretch. You can also provide deep tissue massage simultaneously while stretching a tight scar band. Ambulation should be initiated as soon as the physical and medical condition warrant, usually 48 to 72 hours after injury, even if intubated. So that wraps up our overview of hemophilia and burns. Definitely worthwhile information to review and definitely both included on the DSP. So let us know if you have any questions or comments and make sure to check out our Instagram page for some of those graphs or pictures that we were talking about. We will see you guys next time. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.